You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Um, We are continuing and wrapping up a series that we've been through the past few weeks here at Restoration Today uh, called Images of God. And we've been walking through uh, the first few chapters of Genesis and looking at what it means to be an image bearer. And today, we're going to kind of take a different direction um, in the conversation. Uh, And we're going to look at something that I think uh, we don't often consider. Um, And to get started with that, I want us to think about something maybe we've all experienced. Maybe a time in your life you've been overlooked for something. All right? Maybe a job. All right? Maybe job promotion. Maybe... Uh, trying out for something like a sports team, auditioning for something where you were passed over and you were like, that should have been me, all right? I think we can all think of a time where we were overlooked, passed over, and and we said, this isn't fair. And when I think about my own life, there's one experience that comes to my mind from when I was in high school. Um, And I grew up in Texas. That's going to be really important for what this story has to do with. So keep Texas in your mind. Because when it came to two things in school that I loved to do, it was two things. It was band and basketball. Now, if you know Texas, there's one thing missing on that list. Football. All right? Football. Football is a religion in Texas. And I'm not joking. Um, It is taken way, way serious, especially high school football. Um, And I grew up in a really small West Texas town, 1,500 people. Nearest town was 20 miles away. It was a whole day to go to Walmart. I mean, big, big day to go to Walmart. So me not playing football was a huge, huge deal. I chose to focus on basketball. And let's just say that's one reason I love living in Kentucky now. Um, But I used to actually root for our football team to lose um, because I was so ready for basketball season to start. I used to be up in the band, you know, saying, like, secretly being like, I hope we don't score right here. Um, because we couldn't start basketball season until football season was over because it was such a small school. Our football coach would lock the basketballs during the off season. He'd be like, you can wait till football season's over because you didn't play. Um, so big deal. So finally, basketball season rose around my freshman year. And I was on the JV team, and I was really excited. It was the same exact team I had been with all through middle school. We were pretty good, except some new changes in high school. We had a new coach. And being such a small town meant that all of the other coaches had to coach different sports. And we drew uh, one of the assistant football coaches, um, who literally his whole life was football, his whole life. And so when it came to assigned playing time, his first choice was his football boys on the team, the ones who played, whether on varsity or who had been one of his uh, positions that he had coached, and I got passed over most of the time because I wasn't part of that football crowd. Even though I was pretty much the same skill, playing time was determined by whether or not you played football. Um, So I was overlooked, and it was not fun my freshman year of high school. And and I bring that up because we could probably all understand that. We can understand being overlooked. We can understand overlooking important things in our lives like, you know, gratitude or being patient. 
we can overlook a lot of things. And when we take a look at Genesis 1 through 3, there's something we overlook. And we overlook it not just here in Genesis 3, but all throughout the rest of the Bible. We spend a lot of time in the first few chapters of Genesis thinking about humans, us, which is fine. We're all human, all right? We, we want to understand who we are, what it be, means to be made in God's image, what it means for us to be alive, living here and now, what it means for us uh, to have sinned and understand the separation from God, all these different things. And that's all right and good. But we often overlook and we fail to think about one significant piece of Genesis 1 through 3, and that's creation itself, all right? The physical world we inhabit. And so kind of one of the main ideas I want to explore today is this idea that to overlook creation is to miss out on the fullness of God's plan of redemption. Let me say that again. To overlook creation is to miss out on the fullness of God's plan of redemption, so to do that, I want to continue to look at Genesis 1 through 3 and answer a few questions. What do these chapters reveal to us about creation? What do they reveal to us about God? What does Genesis 1 through 3 connect to the rest of Scripture? And what's our role in this world we live in? So let's take a big picture look. Let's zoom out from a thousand foot view and take a look at how creation shows up in the first few chapters. So we get to Genesis 1, all right? And the first description we get of the world is this in Genesis 1, 1 to 2. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. When we read that, we see that the first description we get of creation is something that is formless, unordered, dark, empty. And in fact, if you were an ancient reader, this would put the picture of absolute chaos in your mind. Nothing is in order. And as you read the rest of chapter one, what is God doing? He's putting things in order. He's bringing order out of chaos. Even the days of chapter one correspond together. If you were to read it from a big picture view, days one through three directly connect to days four through six. And this orderly process takes place as God speaks and out of chaos comes light. Land, sky, vegetation, birds, humans, animals. And a lot of the time we want to pause here and we want to argue, all right? I like to argue, but that's not the purpose, all right? We would really like to get caught up and argue about, well, what is meant by 24 hours of a day here, all right? Is it an actual one-day period? What's going on with this and the connection to understanding uh, Genesis 1 and the ancient world, we could get really caught up in a lot of arguments, and I, I, I love to get caught up in those arguments, but that's not the point of this passage. So if that's not the purpose, what is Genesis 1 revealing about God and about creation? Genesis 1 reveals a God who has orderly created the universe, who has created a place where flourishing takes place a world of shalom, which we would understand as peace, but a Jewish person would understand everything is in right order. So when we get to the end of chapter 1 and God says everything is good, he literally means it. Everything is good. Everything is in order. Everything is in place as it should be, not just with humans, but with this physical world. And as we move into chapter 2, we see God take time to rest, to enjoy what he has made. 
And then after that, things kind of change a little bit because we get a whole different creation story. That's a little bit different. Chapter 1 is much more big picture. We see uh, all the days, all the things taking place. But then chapter 2 focuses much more on God's relationship with his creation. The language changes. The name of God changes. We go from a general name for God in the first chapter to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in the second chapter. And God is much more involved in the process. He participates. We read not him just speaking things into existence, but he plants a garden. It says he got formed out of the ground, man, animals, all these different things. And once again, we could get lost in some other debates. We could ask, is the Garden of Eden a real place? Is this figurative? All these different things. But that's not, once again, what the author is trying to do. The author of Genesis 2 is revealing that we have a God who is intimately involved with his creation. He's not at a distance. He's not standing off and dropping things out there. He is actively involved in the world that he's made. He crafts things. He brings things into existence. He plants gardens. He plants trees. He grows trees. He forms life from the ground. And then when we move to chapter 3, things get a little dicey. Everything changes. And we, we know the story here. Adam and Eve are faced with a choice to be faithful and rebel. We know how that ends up. Rebellion takes place. Sin takes place. But it's not just humanity that gets broken in this process. We read in Genesis 3, 17 that God tells Adam, Adam that the curse is the ground, that the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles, that creation itself, the physical world, is broken. And God is making it clear that not only are we broken, but the world we inhabit is broken as well. Things are not the way they should be anymore. And Genesis 3 shows us a lot of different things, and we could get sidetracked once again and ask all kinds of questions. Are Adam and Eve, who are they? What's going on with this talking snake and all these things? We could have some really fun conversations, but that's not the purpose. It's not a theological textbook, all right? Genesis 3 is revealing a God that has created the world, but now the world of shalom, this world that has been in order, is broken. The order of present in chapter 1 is broken. The relationship and intimacy between God and his creation is strained. And we could stop right there, and that would be a really sad story, let me tell you. We could stop right there, and everything falls apart. But the good news is this. Just because something is broken does not mean it's lost. All right? Just because it's broken doesn't mean it's lost. Just because you and I are broken does not mean it's lost. Just because creation itself and the world we inhabit has been broken does not mean it is lost. Because God is at work to do something. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we usually don't think about the role creation plays here. We usually focus on us, how sin and the fall and the brokenness of the world affects us as people. And we assume that God wants to redeem us, but no longer cares about the world he's created. And that's false. And it fails to see the grand scope, the big picture of redemption that God promises all throughout the Bible. Redemption is not just for you and for I, it's for all of creation. And we're going to see this played out in a passage I want to read, a passage we should all be familiar with in the New Testament. John 3, 16 to 17. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him and shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
We all know this passage pretty well. I mean, we see it plastered all over different kinds of things, t-shirts, all kinds of stuff. And we usually read this passage focusing on how does this matter for me as an individual person, for my salvation, my redemption as an individual human being. But when we look and we see God or John say, for God so loved the world, or God did not condemn the world, but he's saving the world, it could be easy for us to assume that the world means humans, humans alone. And we use, we use phrases all the time to talk about the world being related to people. We may say the world's full of evil, war, injustice, oppression, all these things which have to do with people. But when we look at the Greek language, the Greek word here is cosmos. And a Greek person would not understand that word to just mean people, but to mean everything, the everything in the entire created order, the created universe, all created things, not just people. So when John writes that Jesus came to save the world, he doesn't just mean us as humans. He means all things. Jesus is restoring all things. He's not just restoring peace to us as broken humans, but peace to the physical created world as well. And it's not just here we see this. We could fast forward to the end in Revelation 21, 1 through 5 when we see this. And it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things had passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation is pointing us forward to the completion of God's redemption, and many of us you know, we've read Revelation or we think of Revelation as the end of the world, as if God's going to destroy this place and we're going to start over up in the clouds or somewhere. But that is not what the author intends. Christ is not coming back to destroy creation. He's coming to redeem and restore all things, to make all things new by bringing heaven and earth together as one. So hope you're beginning to see the connection here between creation all throughout the scripture. And as I said in the beginning, when we overlook creation, we miss out on the fullness of God's plan of redemption. There's hope because we're not lost. This world itself in all of its physical capabilities is not lost. We are not just waiting to escape this place. We are part of restoration, which leads to our final question this morning. What's our response here? What's our role as bearers of God's image? And to answer those questions, I still want to continue to use Genesis 1 through 3 as our foundation. And first and foremost, I'm going to say this. We have a responsibility to enjoy creation. We have a responsibility to enjoy what God has created. As we read earlier in Genesis 2, God himself takes time to step back and enjoy what he has made. And as someone who I love the outdoors, I'm very passionate about it, because when I take time to enjoy creation, I encounter God in ways that I could not otherwise. It's whether I'm camping, hiking, or sitting in a kayak, or whatever it may be, I feel that I'm in direct 
contact with God's presence. That's because creation reveals who God is. All throughout the Old Testament, we see this. For example, Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. The words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. The writer there is saying, look, the world around us proclaims the glory of God, and when we choose to take time to see it, to enjoy it, we realize just how small we are and how vast God's love is to be mindful of us. Despite the brokenness of this world, God continues to reveal himself today in it. And when we choose to open our eyes to it, we can be sure to see the presence of God. And in connection to enjoying creation, this next thing, we have a responsibility to take care of creation, to take care of what God has created. Once again, we read earlier in Genesis 1, 31, God proclaims, and he says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God proclaims creation to be good, and not only that, but when we get to chapter 2, he tells Adam this. He says to Adam, he said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God told Adam and gave him responsibility to care for what he had made. And just because we fast forward past Genesis 2, past Genesis 3, does not mean that responsibility is gone. The same responsibility applied to Adam as bearers of God's image applies to us. To take care of the world that God loves, the world that he's at work to redeem, the world that proclaims the glory of God. And how can we do that? Well, for one, I think we need to recognize that this world's not ours. We don't have ownership of anything in this world. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. But not just that, we have to recognize that in this world of God's, we have a role in bringing restoration on earth here and now. In an article in Relevant Magazine, Nancy Sleeth says this. She says, life is not merely preparation for heaven. It is also an opportunity for us to put heavenly principles into practice here on earth. God loves us to redeem, restore, and renew, and he longs to involve us in the process. God created us on earth because this is a place where we can actively participate in his work of redemption. We have a part to play in the restoration of this world. That is hope. That is good news. And we can do it in simple ways. We don't have to overcomplicate it. We can be mindful of our impact and our waste. We can recycle. We can reuse things instead of buying new things. We could practice things like leave no trace when we go outdoors. We could educate ourselves on the ways of the world and on how to better take care of the environment. And in writing this sermon, I realized just how little of those things I do and how much more I should do. Because we have a responsibility to care for what God has made. So as I move towards the end this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up, I want us to come back to where we began this morning with the main idea to say that to overlook creation is to miss out on the fullness of God's plan of redemption God is not at work just to restore humanity. He's at work to renew, redeem, and restore all things. 
And that's, that's really, really good news today. The God we worship is willing, wanting, and able to take what is broken, whether it is you, whether it is me, whether it is this world, and he's able to make it whole again. And as bearers of God's image, God invites us to participate, to have a part in that restorative work, to enjoy what is made, and to take part in caring and restoring the world around us. Not just spiritually, but physically. This is our call today, to be involved in the world around us, to be involved in God's restorative work. Let's pray together this morning. God, as we come before you today, as we look at the world around us and the beauty of it, God, make us aware of your presence. Make us aware of the ways in which we could care for the world around us, to take care of this world. God, to be a part of the restoration of peace and wholeness to this world. God, as image bearers, may we not just overlook the fact of the world that you've created, but God, may we play a part in your redemption, in your renewal, in your restoration of all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Every week we have an opportunity to respond uh, by coming to the table. So we have communion elements up here and in the back right there. You don't have to participate when we here at this church, invite all to come because Christ invites all to his table. And as you receive the body and blood of Jesus this morning, remember the hope we have, the hope of redemption, the hope of renewal, the hope of restoration, not just for you, not just for me, but for all.